Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Head Stuff Studios in Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast of words, Irish, Irish words and words from world. I'm Dara Cochet. I'm delighted today to be joined by writer Claire O'Dea. Hi, Dara. <laughs> yeah, no. Claire is an Irish writer based in Switzerland, in Freiburg. Yes, it's uh, Freiburg in German and mm-hmm. Fribourg in French, and uh, and they have both languages there. It's a mixed town. Fantastic. And you have, and Switzerland obviously has a very interesting language uh, approach. To language we'll definitely be discussing. You have written a book called The Naked Swiss, and you've written a follow- another different book out this this autumn called The Naked Irish, which is published by Red Stag, mm-hmm. and very welcome to the show. So, what made you write The Naked Swiss? What, what provoked this um, need to tell this tale? Yes, The Naked Swiss. Well, I had been in Switzerland a bit more than 10 years. And for most of that time, I was working for the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation in their international news section. So, I'd written loads of stories about Switzerland, uh, you know, general, about everything, politics, culture, society, economics, whatever. And so I had all of those um, pieces that I was putting together, the jigsaw of understanding the country. And mm-hmm. and then a couple of things came together and uh, sort of um, made me think a bit deeper. You know, one thing was that I I wanted to become a, to get my Swiss citizenship. Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal. Like I had hesitated for a long time before that. You know, I was reluctant. I was thinking I didn't, I felt like it might dilute my Irishness in some mm-hmm. way. But there had been a vote about restricting immigration uh, for EU citizens. And uh, later there was another vote about automatic deportation for foreigners uh, who committed crimes. I mean, yeah. and, um, you know, and, you know, it is far fetched. Like, I'm not a criminal. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you never know if you, when life will, when something unexpected will happen. Or, you know, I used to kind of joke and say, if we were on holiday somewhere and there was a natural disaster and the Swiss helicopter would come in to -hmm. take my husband and my kids. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh, what about me? So um, (laughs) there was all that, Mm. but there was also wanting to vote because voting is massively important in Switzerland. So Mm -hmm. that was the the context. And then the final thing was leaving my job because I'd felt like I'd done enough of the same thing for for enough years that I wanted to change and I was going to go freelance. And uh, it just seemed like the timing, it was like... Yeah, this is a good time to really study this place and mm. and and kind of claim it for myself. Absolutely, and we all like 
like a lot of people grow up in Ireland, we have certain ideas of Switzerland or head or Switzerland when it comes up in the news certain times in respect to certain topics, usually neutrality, European borders and gun ownership. But then, and then you decided to actually take a lot of these topics and basically identify the cliches and can basically tear them apart or get dig deeper into them. Yeah, yeah, that was the idea. I mean, originally I, I had a working title of Misunderstanding the Swiss and I was, uh, I noticed a lot from the comments on some of the stories that, that I would cover, you know, that there was sort of a bit of, bit of a misunderstanding or like um, sort of a distorted idea of, of some of the Swiss things. And, and there were quite a lot of people who come to Switzerland um, and don't really settle in very well. Yeah. Um, you know, for and English speakers, in some cases, that's because they are in this special category of, of they consider themselves to be a different kind of immigrant, that they're yeah. expats and they don't expect to stay for long and um, and they're not fully integrated or speaking the language. So they end up kind of, they might have a, bad ex- a few bad experiences and then mm-hmm. then after that there's kind of, yeah, they, they there's no way back in kind of thing. So, um, yeah, and then you'd see that there was this, these people would make jokes to me uh, about Nazi gold and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I thought there hadn't really been anything um, uh, comprehensive, but not too long. Like there's been books about about the war and about the Swiss role in the war, but I, I wanted. A, I did a chapter on on um, what was the title of the chapter? Um, yeah, the Swiss helped the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Question mark is implied, like yeah. like in the Irish book as well. Um, so so yeah, it was it was good to finally get into all these subjects in depth and. Uh, and maybe kind of set the record straight. And I kind of thought maybe building some bridges between the Swiss and they and they have a huge foreign-born community. Like it's one in four there. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's that yeah. high. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, it's, you know, it's it's the crossroads of Europe and it's a small country. So you, you if there, you have a lot of cross-border workers, mm-hmm. like um, I think it's 600,000 cross-border workers. They don't count. I mean, they, as yeah. as residents, they're mm. outside. They, they come in every day to work across the border. Some of them go across the the lake, G- Lake Geneva. That's a nice commute. That is a beautiful commute. I, many years, it feels like a lifetime ago. I wrote a thesis on the effect of cross border commuting on the housing market. I was using Ireland specifically as the example, but I was using for for comparison points. I was using the cross border commuting in France, southern France, and Switzerland, as well as mm. the Orsund Bridge between Denmark and Sweden. And how that affected things, particularly because so much of state policy is you live here, you work here, you pay tax here, and then when one of those, one of those steps is actually happening in another country, it 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 kind of uh, upsets the apple cart a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it was it was fascinating the fact that what I discovered was housing. It's housing in Switzerland is going to be expensive anyway, but it's doubly so because every canton is required to be agriculturally self sufficient. God, I didn't know that. And the idea was that back in the old days when Napoleon was having was running around Europe, they, they they were concerned that if all the agriculture was in some of the cantons, that if they could basically attack the farms first, they could starve the cities. But if every canton was able to su- sustain itself, they could effectively keep some as, as much of Switzerland safe as possible. That's very clever. <laughs> very clever, typical Swiss. Yeah, but I mean, I I don't know. Today, I don't think that they. Uh, they would be totally self-sufficient. We, I think they, they say we, we have enough agriculture to be self-sufficient, but a lot of it's vineyards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the other thing, when my one time visiting Switzerland, the Swiss wine is great and they don't sell it anywhere else. No, it's hardly known. Mm-hmm. Um, now, but it is their first drink of choice. So, I mean, when they're when they're drinking wine, which they drink wine with all their meals and uh, 
In fact, the Swiss drink a lot. You know, any cha- any opportunity there, they call it the apero. They'll they'll break open bottles of wine mm-hmm. very early in the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, if there's something to celebrate at work or in in the family or whatever. Um, but uh, but their own wines, yeah, they they are kind of a well kept secret, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So how was the how was the response to your book about the naked Swiss in Switzerland? What was the response like that? Like, I mean, did, uh, was it mostly aimed for an international audience about Switzerland, or was it? Would, did Swiss people read it much themselves? Um, I, yeah, I think most of the readers ended up being um, people who had an outside connection. Mm-hmm. A lot of them would would have been very long term residents. Some of them might might have um, foreign parents or something. Yeah, and um, and yeah, the response I got was. I think a lot of people were, not a lot of people, but certain people were pleased with the chapter on women because um, to have it all in one place, all of the all of the progress and all of the changes, um, you know, Switzerland was the last country in the Western world to give, to grant the vote to women. Oh. Yes, and because it was done by referendum, like everything is done by referendum. Hmm. So, in, in, that was in 1972, I think, and... Uh, yeah, so I, even my mother-in-law, when she was having her third child, you know, she she still couldn't vote. Really? Which, yeah, which is amazing, yeah. Mm. But if you had put that question to, if you'd given that power to male voters, because before that date there were only male voters, mm. in all the other countries, maybe the women would have had to wait longer, you know. It was, uh, the vote came in through through parliaments elsewhere, the vo- votes for women. That's right, and that, that's when you have parliaments, or when, particularly if they're responding to court rulings or things like that, they can take a decision that people will accept, even if they don't necessarily suggest it themselves. Mm-hmm. And and the same way, we've there have there have been un- unpopular laws passed now that people just got on with very quickly. Even you think about how how close their divorce referendum was, the first divorce referendum was, or let's say the one in 1995, and how af- shortly afterwards everyone who voted against it just forgot they voted against it. Yeah, <laughs> or a lot of them did anyway. Yeah, yeah. So this journey, after writing The Naked Swiss, you've now written The Naked Irish. And this is basically about the cliches all about Ireland, which is something we're very interested in here in Mother Folklore. Yeah. Who do you say, who do you say this book is for? <sighs> well, uh, I suppose, you know, it's for people of, for different generations, for different reasons. People mm-hmm. of my generation, born in the 70s, um, it's it's a good recap over uh, lots of things. Like I, I mean, I go back to the Iron Age, <laughs> yeah. and um, it's, it's uh, the book touches on on history and culture and economics and um, and politics. So it makes a, a lot of connections. So I think that's satisfying, you know, to mm. to when even when a lot of it might be familiar to you, but it's it's also. Um, allowing a little bit of soul searching. Um, and then probably for younger readers who might have gaps in their recent history knowledge because mm-hmm. it's they were either not born or, or too small to remember these things happening. Yeah. Things in the 70s and 80s or even 90s. Um, they might only know them by name. And um, and so, yeah, the book kind of connects the dots. That's great. I'm... I just know because some of some of my uh, some of my collaborators in this very podcast have never had a Irish Eurovision win since they've been born, <laughs> and it's just that's just something alarming to me because you would have thought yeah. that something was so close to our kind of identity mm-hmm. growing up in the eighties and nineties. I, I mentioned Johnny Logan in there. I said that his white suit was the only bright spot in the nineteen eighties. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. God, yeah, Johnny Logan. He's a he's some man, some man for man, and he's a, a, a 
massively multilingual man himself, I'm told now as well. Oh, really? Living in Turkey and Germany and all those places now. Oh, did did he move to Turkey? I believe he had. God, I heard he was big in Turkey. I think he lives in Germany and does a lot of work in Turkey and around. But yeah, Yeah. it's a a fascinating guy. So some of the chapters here, which which, as you say, implied question marks. Mm -hmm. The Irish are violent. The Irish are great writers. The Irish are Catholic. The Irish women are a force to be reckoned with. The Irish hate the English. And the Irish are friendly, <laughs> among others. So it's definitely food for thought here. Were some of these um, ideas, these cliches, but are inspired by your your travels in Switzerland and the rest of Europe and questions you were asked about Ireland? Yeah, they were. And um, by time spent away looking back and things I notice now that I mightn't have noticed before. But also... I'm also kind of picking up on the way the Irish are represented in the wider English-speaking world. Yeah. Like I say in the in the introduction or the foreword there that Ireland entered the English-speaking world and then became defined by by the others in that world. Yeah. Um, like, you know, the Portuguese wouldn't have the same complexes that we have because they live in a Portuguese world. Yeah. They decide who they are. They weren't they're not given a role by anybody else. Whereas the Irish were, you know, the rogues or the the surly servants or the troublemakers, yeah, um, and and the other, you know, or the entertainer. Yeah, so they were they were effectively consuming propaganda about themselves from within their other language from, from another country, and it's uh, yeah, and perpetuating it like with the the Irish Americans, they they hold on to a lot of that, and then they they feed films back to us. Yeah. Um, you know, The Quiet Man and many, many more, you know, that it's reinforce a, those ideas. It really is a fun, funny thing, the idea that we can, we're reinforcing those kind of stories about, them, about themselves. It's like a story about a story about a story. Mm-hmm. That's for something, I suppose, it's been said that The Quiet Man is no, is, is as, as it's, it's as mythologized as, the, as John Ford's films about the Wild West were. And that they, it was, that's, that's just how he filmed places. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, it's, it is really interesting that I suppose we, how we we see we see a version of Ireland that has 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 been imagined by by the children of immigrants abroad. It's a, it is a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Say, who do you say is the most famous Irish person in Switzerland? Or because you know the way we we would say that, um, you know, like the most famous Irish person in England is very different from the most famous Irish person in Australia and the different countries. And yeah. say Stephen Roach would be such a big person in France, oh, whereas yeah. Yeah. whereas in Spain it would probably be a, a footballer rather than an actor. I never thought about that before. My God, I, is, I hope it's not Bono. But I think it might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I, it might be. <laughs> you two, uh, no, no, no other musical act has been as big as them mm-hmm. um, since 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 their heyday. And uh, who else would there be? Well, them, I suppose they know um, Pierce Brosnan, of course. Yeah, and but in terms of kind of statesmen, hmm. nobody. Probably not. No. It's always funny because when, when, when I was in Argentina and I told someone I was Irish, they said, oh, you mean like Dilla Rosa Redan? <laughs> I thought it was just lovely. I just remember yeah. that, 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 that she was the first person they thought of when they thought of Ireland. Yeah. I hope yeah. she knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, and then when you, were, when you were writing this book and when you say, like you've written a chapter here about the Irish being great writers and you include a element here of old Irish, which you always like to see. Mm-hmm. It's Agar Ignal. Inicht Fufnasa, Faragay, Finfault, Niagar Rim, Mora Min, Don Lechred, Flynn, Ochlochland. Now, 
Emer Duffy normally does our old Irish pronunciation here. It's slightly different, but mm-hmm. I hope that wasn't too bad. But that translates as bitter as the wind tonight. It tosses the ocean's white hair. I fear not the coursing of a clear sea by fierce warriors from the Lothland. Being the Vikings, of course, lots mm-hmm. of kennings there. And this part about the Irish being, being great writers, obviously you and I being writers is something we like to mm-hmm. see. Is this something that you reckon this is well regarded in, in continental Europe that we have a reputation for writing? Yes, that that is definitely, that reputation is, is assured. It's out there. Um, and if you go into a Swiss bookshop, you'll see in the English section, and they all have an English section to begin with, which mm-hmm. is n- notable in itself. There's no German section here. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, you'll see Irish names there. You'll see new releases. Anyone who's done well in Ireland, they're, they're, uh, they're distributed in, uh, right across and in the original English and translations as well. So one of the things that I was saying, well, I was saying a few things in the in the writer's chapter, like not to take away from from the success of the Irish. But one thing is that this is held up. This is what Irish excellence looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the first thing we excelled at and we've really clung to that. So people who want to do well in life, you know, the, the, the dream is to be a, a writer in Ireland because writers are so well celebrated. Um, but um, we also have this advantage of being in the English-speaking world and the, this massive dominance that English has, you know, in terms of what's translated and what's what's read around the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we have the UK market and the American market. Like we know them quite well. Like we're we're very closely linked, and we've been yeah. spying on them for years, mm-hmm. or been in and out of their society as observers. So I suppose we we know how to, and we've got this sort of exotic touch in their eyes. Yeah. So all of these things have helped Irish writers continue to be successful. But it is a, it is a brand as well, and and maybe some Irish writers are get more notice than they would if they were Danish or something else. Hmm. And you know, isn't maybe we're not like super super talented. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we're just we're, we're unusually well placed in, in in the in the worlds of, of English English language publication. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. That's that's a good thing. I think it's, it's been a, it's been a remarkable decade for Irish fiction, especially uh, especially Irish fiction by women. Mm-hmm. And uh, long may it continue. It's just uh, some people reckon that the that the Celtic Tiger represented a slight dip in Irish publishing because, so, <laughs> but maybe the recession maybe led to a re-energizing of the story. But I'm I'm, I'm wary of that kind of thinking because because we have to suffer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to produce we art, to, we have to suffer to produce art, or we have to yeah. we can't be too busy in our work. Mm. So, um, you um, tell, so when you moved to Switzerland, did you how was your German and your French? Uh, my French was was pretty good. I had I studied languages in Trinity. I studied French and Russian. Oh, yeah, and um, and I worked in Russia for for a while. Um, so, my, but I didn't have a word of German. Um, and then I ended up. Um, well, my husband is Swiss German, so. Like the only thing I knew was Sieg Heil and Halt. <laughs> Pretty bad. An Achtung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, where we live, it's right on the border of where the German, the German-speaking majority part of the country is. Like the capital, Bern, is about half an hour away. Mm. And um, so I straight away knew that I wanted to learn German. I needed to learn German, otherwise I'd be confined to one quarter of the country. And uh, and I went and did. Um, 
language classes. They have a, um, a, a supermarket chain called Migro. Okay. And Migro also um, runs adult education schools. Oh. Yeah. So uh, lots of people do Migro courses and they do language courses. So that's where I, I started my German learning the days of the week, literally starting from scratch. Um, and and then the rest, there was the difficulty of uh, the standard German that I was learning was different to the dialect that people speak. I mean, it's as different as Donegal Irish and Munster Irish. So mm. imagine you go to a class where you're learning Munster Irish and you have all the spellings and terms and everything. And then that, that's all ignored by the, I mean, mm. in the dialect, they, they mix up the cases and they do what they like kind of thing. Yeah. And they gobble up the words you know, like instead of ich bin, it's ibe. You oh, know, yes. They don't even, yeah. Hmm. So so then I had to learn the two together. Um, but I did, I think from my Irish language, growing up with Irish made it easier to pronounce Swiss German because it's a very, there's a lot of <laughs> sounds in there and uh, and that wasn't a problem. And then, then the rest was just, was through necessity of, of learning it and ending up working in Bern. Hmm. And this is the thing about language is the necessity thing, you know, and when that's taken away and it's kind of taken away from the beginning with Irish, it's it's you're not forced to speak it. So you it, it um, yeah, it can go by the wayside. It, it can slide, particularly yeah. in those in those after school years. You can you can find that like, when it, as an unexercised muscle, it can it can it can go bad quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame, particularly, as you say there, that. Irish does actually give you a good grounding for learning those other languages, particularly in the pronunciation. It's so interesting how often people say how their Irish helps with their German. Yes, true. Mm. And Russian as well. Oh. Yeah, Russian, because Russian has the ch as well. It also has the e sound, like bui, mm. um, which lots of people, uh, Anglo speakers, can't do. But we can because you have bui. Yes. <laughs> and uh, puppy in Russian is shinok, isn't it? Like shinok. Um, I don't know the word puppy. Sabaka is dog. Because obviously a Chinook is an Irish, and but Chinook, I think, was because they, they oh. was their helicopter called, was that a wolf or a puppy? I think Chinook yeah, was their name. I always remember mm. that as being the Irish-Russian connection. Oh, okay. And I once heard that the word for fox in the Berber language mm-hmm. was also something like Chinook. Really? Yeah, yeah. But maybe maybe I'm mixing it up with something else. Mm, I'll have to yeah. into that. That's great. Yeah. So did you, like, did you find that learning Irish in school kind of gave you a, st- <laughs> helped in a way towards... Um, mm. Yes, well, I think like yourself, you had uh, Irish from was it your dad? Yeah, but. at home, and um, my mother comes from Connemara, and she was part of this generation who were, you know, the the state was still trying, and maybe, I don't know if they believed in it, but they're still trying to revive the language. Mm. So they were recruiting native speakers of Irish to be primary school teachers, yes, and giving them before free secondary education, giving them scholarships. She was one of those, one of that batch. So she got, you know, everything paid for and teacher training college is secondary and then teacher training college. And then she started teaching, uh, she taught in two or three places. She ended up in Skullercon in Monkstown and she mm. stayed there for 42 years. So she like spoke Irish to us as children. And, you know, I heard my first word was ishke. Mm. Um, and so Irish for me was just the natural language. Mm. You know, and um, which makes it kind of it's kind of sad that I feel my Irish like has got so depleted, you know, even though it feels natural to me, um, I don't have the vocabulary anymore. That's a real shame. Yeah. Yeah. But um, 
And then the other languages I've learned since then have also messed things up a bit. <laughs> so it's, you, you, you occasionally drop an Irish word or a French word into your Irish. I've seen it happen all the time. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I do a bit of that. And, and I think also... Um, one of the like, I definitely would have been someone who wanted to bring my kids up in Irish. That mm. w- if I'd if I'd if they'd grown up here, um, but you know they would probably sue me if I <laughs> if I spoke Irish to them instead of English, and that was their you know that they wouldn't be able to have the native English mm. um, advantage. Um, so yes, yeah, so I feel a bit sad that that they don't have it. But I mean, they they have a few songs and uh, phrases like into the lava and <laughs> things like that. That's good. Yeah. And obviously, you you have your you have children who are growing up in Switzerland, a very different country with a different approach to to language culture and language learning. Mm. And how do you do you see it just happening from from schools or just from society the way the languages are being picked up? Do when you obviously have your own memories of growing up in in Ireland and learning language in school and seeing that now? I mean, how old are so roughly? Um, I have uh, twins who are thirteen oh. and a nine year old, um, all girls, and. Uh, and actually, um, they they should they should they should because it's majority French speaking where we live mm. in our neighbourhood and in the town. But uh, there are schools for the German language kids oh, too, yeah. separate. Uh, they should be really good at French by now. Also, because they went to crash where people only spoke French. But I know my youngest, she didn't speak a word. She was three years in the crash. She never spoke to anybody. I mean, she re- she was really like these are not my people. I'll just get through the day, but I'm not going to communicate <laughs> with them because mm. I ended up coming back here when she was three for, for one school term as an exception. It was, and uh, from day one, she, she was happy to talk to the teachers because in the, in the play school, yeah. because, she, oh, they're like, they talk like my mom. <laughs> um, yeah. So they actually officially start learning a, a second or their first foreign language, a, a national language in third class. Okay. And, um, and, and I think it's 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 strange. It's like they're given books that are really complex from the word go. Like mm. it's not they're they don't start with really, really basic books and basic phrases. You know, they're okay. they're kind of thrown into it. They don't have a, a brand or kind of like brand the dog. No, they brand. they don't have these little readers with the very, very simple sentences. Uh, maybe that's because they ha- they assume the children have some exposure already. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, um, but but yeah, I mean Switzerland is successfully, well, not just trilingual. Three national languages, and the fourth one is Romansh is not is not national in the sense that not all this documentation has to be translated into Ro- yeah. uh, Romansh because it's such a tiny language numbers wise. I think it's only fifty thousand people, um, but a lot of Swiss people don't use the other languages on a daily basis, and they wouldn't want to. Yeah, you know they they. They stay in their language region. Hmm. In fact, even in their canton, they're very canton focused because they've got their yeah. own police force and their own government and their own everything, you know, hospitals. They they just, it's a big deal to cross the cantonal border more, more I think, than counties. That's extraordinary. Yeah. It's 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 funny, and then they have so much direct democracy as well. And I would like those probably like there's accountability structures within the canton in a way that don't exist in local government Ireland the same way. Yeah, yeah, they Mm. are much more like little states, Mm. mini states nearly. 
Join us in Cork on October 13th. That's a Sunday afternoon in the Spalpeen Fawnock, where we will be taking part in the Cork Podcast Festival. Follow Cork Podcast Festival on Twitter for all the details. Tickets are 18 euro and they're selling like hotcakes. So make sure you get yours. Join us in Dublin as well on the 17th of November. We'll be taking part in the Dublin Podcast Festival. We're going to do a double header in the Grand Social with the amazing Irish Passport. So not to be missed. If you're around Dublin, look up Dublin Podcast Festival on Twitter or you can go to Dublin podcastfestival.com Claire, one of the chapters in your book is about the myth or the cliche or the, the perception that the Irish hate the English. As you know at the moment, there's a bit of a bit of a kerfuffle with the, <laughs> with, with, the, with the Brexit process and how they leave the United Kingdom leaving Europe will affect the border in, on the island of Ireland. And obviously one of the one of the examples for one of the possible models for Brexit is the Swiss model. It's one of the less popular models for some reason, which is which I wonder how is that perceived in Switzerland that their version of partial partially being out of Europe is seen as a, as a terrible option by the Brits. Well, yeah, Switzerland is a special case mm-hmm. and um, and I, their arrangement is very hard to replicate because mm-hmm. they, uh, if you if you think that the the British were married, uh, yeah. uh, let's take it as a marriage relationship yeah. for forty two years or whatever it is, um, up until the vote, um, the and now they have all the complication of unraveling that and what happens with the obligations they had before. And let's say they have a share, mutual a shared child in, yeah. in Northern Ireland, um, but the Swiss are more like a civil partnership, you know, that they and they put all those. They started from, they put all those pieces together over a long period of time. Yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah. So the, they, they gradually built up a spoke arrangement as opposed to yeah, being in and yeah. just having to leave. Yeah, yeah. And they did have, um, I wonder, is it 1992 from off the top of my head? They had a vote to, to join the European Economic Area. Hmm. And, um, and at that time, there were a couple of other countries. Austria, um, maybe maybe Norway, maybe they changed their mind, but who were that the EEA was sort of created for them as a kind of a stepping stone to full membership. Yeah, and Iceland as well. Yeah, yeah. and and um, so Switzerland wasn't a complete outlier. Like it ha- it had sort of a free trade agreement from the from the early seventies, which was identical to the one those other neutral countries had, and they. They took those countries as, um, um, you know, countries with 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 a shared um, profile or whatever yeah. to them, um, and then uh, then it came up to the point where they were going to join the EEA with a view, but it was an option of of full member of changing that to full membership at a future date, and they had a vote coming up, um, which which w- looked like it was going to go through, and then they would have had. Almost everything that they ended up building themselves, they would have had in the EEA. Uh, but then there was a very, very su- successful campaign by the Swiss People's Party, and it, they really freaked people out about the EU membership. And it turned into an EU membership vote instead of an EEA vote, and yeah. and it went the other way. Just, just uh, you know, fifty early fifty fifty four or something percent. So, and that that completely uh, derailed, you know, everything that was in place beforehand, and. Mm. and and you know that was a time of, uh, you know, the all the change in Eastern Europe and and 
the, uh, things were being reconfigured. And I think the Swiss were worried, certainly the establishment or the, the government were worried about being left behind. Yeah. I mean, now they kind of sell it as like, oh, look how cool we are. We're not in the EU and yeah. we've got all these special bilateral agreements just for us. Mm-hmm. But 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 when they when they were sort of they weren't they didn't choose that road. They were kind of catapulted down that road. And then they had to start from scratch and rebuild. They have like 120 bilateral agreements for all the different sectors and all the different imaginable connections mm. that, that they have with the EU. And like they they are as as integrated as you could be without being a member. Yeah. You know, they pay money in and they take they copy paste EU legislation mm-hmm. like this is, you know, the, the, the some of the British might think that the, that they are totally free, but they're not. I mean. They're not going to have different standards for how many millimeters wide a, a toothpaste tube is. You know, mm. they they go all that stuff doesn't matter. All that detail stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. but this is the it's the perception of it. The idea that they're yeah. taking back control. Yeah, and this is what comes into it. And then obviously that that's when we think about borders again and how and how, how those kind of controls are going to affect things and how those topics it just kind of takes us back to Ireland's relationship. Those some of those things that those. I think possibly one of the reasons our Ireland's relationship with Europe is a little bit complicated. It hasn't been it hasn't been entirely positive. It's it's been hugely positive though. Um, but it does. I do think that because an awful lot of European Court of Justice decisions in Ireland have been progressive against what Ireland wanted. That's that's generally led to particularly say when Mary Robinson and David Norris went to the to European Court of Justice about homosexuality and several other decisions like that. That. The European Court of Justice has basically forced Ireland to actually be more progressive in a way that people have actually accepted those decisions. There haven't been as many. I don't think there's been in the in the UK. I don't think they've necessarily had that same relationship with the ECJ. But that's getting. I, mean, I'm, yeah. I, I know that's not what I brought you here to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, but going from there, the relationship between Ireland and England, and or particularly the English, as opposed to just uh, the British, because that's a more complicated question. Mm-hmm. It's it's complicated. Yeah, it's definitely complicated. Mm. You know, there has been bad blood there. And, you know, I, I think in terms of whether the Irish hate the English, like there is a spectrum. I mean, there are people mm. who are like that. I mean, they do. They get they get it with their mother's milk and they're just, mm. they 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 have an aversion to, to everything to do with the English. Like, remember the statue in Stephen's Green, the haunted, haunted soldier or the haunting soldier from the First World War, representing the fallen soldiers of the First yeah. World War. That was vandalised. That's it. That's just a very, mm. you know, how would I describe? Raw. What do the, what, yeah, what do, that's just a very visceral thing. Yeah, I think. The, the, the people, the people who feel that strongly, anything that represents British or Englishness is bad. So, but I think they are quite a small minority and um, most people are too involved in, in the, you know, the closeness between the two countries. You know, yeah. we, we're moving back and forth for work, for family, for, for tourism, for sport. You know, we're much closer to them than, than we like to think, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of our identity has been in saying that, you know, all the things the English are, we are not. You know, that was, that's maybe from the, the, fa- the founding days of the state. Yeah. That, was, that was the blueprint, you know. I do. I think, I think new, yeah. new countries, post I guess post-revolution countries, post-independence uh, countries, they have a very much stronger idea of what they are and what they are. And I think that that's definitely been a, a trend in Ireland. One thing, this was particularly in the post-Brexit era, I think Anglo-Irish relations were at, probably at an all-time high right before right before the Brexit vote. You think about the Queen's visit and yeah. things like that. And mm-hmm. particularly, I mean, um, 
and for, for for people of our generations, the the experience of the the Jack Charlton era of, of football and mm-hmm. of, of of accepting the the that people have a binary relationship, being have a little bit of English and a little bit of Irish in yeah. their in their family history, mm-hmm. and and just accepting that that there's there is that natural complexity in in Irish identity, then and then seeing the way. Ireland was spoken about in those post-Brexit um, months and years. Yes, and yeah. It's, as, as if it's they so disappointing. As if they didn't know you were watching. <laughs> this is the worst yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how, how Ireland was talked about in the Swiss media during the, but those post-bailout years. I mean, maybe they may, have, they may have been some unkind sentences, but we never knew. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and we are obsessively keeping track of, of everything. Yes. Um, yeah, I think... Um, it's like the worst characteristics of the English. The char- characteristics that we dislike are are, are now centre stage, hmm. and um, I do think people people are able to make and make a separation in their mind between English people and you know the establishment. So and that's and when but when I, I do see probably more of this, this online, especially there's a candor towards expressions like Brits out mm-hmm. and other kind of. Um, and other kind of our Republican slogans and or yeah. in a way that probably would have been would have been alarming five five years earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um it's also uh, terribly reckless. And um, you know, it's one thing kind of bad mouthing the Irish, there has been some of that. Um mm-hmm. but um although we're pretty critical ourselves. Um yeah. but I think it's it's the it's the this blithe lack of awareness, like I mean the I saw the doc um it's a, like a doc. No, it's not a docudrama. It's a fictional. It's a dramatization of the Leave campaign um, uh, around the time of Brexit, and yeah. it's got Benedict Cumberbatch. It plays oh, Dominic Cummings. The big switch. The, I can't remember the, what, yeah. what it's called, but there was that. I, I ended up seeing that in the same week that, that I watched uh, Cameron's interviews, or one of Cameron's interviews, and it's just like the the word that is always missing. There's never even a sentence. It's just Ireland does not exist in these things. And it's, this is the Team GB yeah. mentality, you know, the cutting off and the forgetting of of um, of their their responsibilities in Northern Ireland. And um, and um, yeah, it's it's the most recent polls in, in the UK. I mean, not even among conservative members, but. You know, they wouldn't mind. Your average English person wouldn't mind if Northern Ireland just went away. Yeah, and yeah. this is—it's hard to see how some the the let's funder and red bus uh, leavers would actually con- consider the money given toward uh, ostensibly given towards the EU that they'd be happy to subsidise. And there's this perception that that Northern Ireland is a dead weight mm-hmm. uh, doesn't actually stand up to much scrutiny, apparently. Um, the I think the idea when you actually factor in how much um, Northern Irish taxpayers are paying towards, you know, kind of military expenses, royal families, national debt, those kinds of things, and but uh, but this perception that Northern Ireland is a dead weight and that the it's being generously subsidised by taxpayers in Surrey and Sussex, I'm not sure that they necessarily yeah be, think that the they prize the union and poll of poll after poll suggests that they are that they don't prize the union as much as. I think, and it makes sense if you look at it in the context of the of the way the referendum was fought. If they had, a, if they fought a referendum about the union that way, it's I doubt many people in, in the in England would vote for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that the on the Irish side, you know, there were I think the Irish government made great efforts to mm-hmm. 
point out, you know, the the problem with Brexit. You know, yeah. the the closer, the further away they move from the EU, the the less, the more complications it, it creates for for us and. Uh, mm. And that just wasn't wasn't listened to, um, or I suppose they just thought they'd get away with it. It does feel that way sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So and, uh, and you have a chapter here about uh, the perceptions of, of United Ireland and what the United Ireland might be as well. <laughs> Do you <laughs> want to say anything about that one uh, or not? Yeah, no. Um, hmm. Well, we were we were just talking about the the cost. My, my I had to get a taxi in here because of the mm-hmm. the problem on the on the on the. The track, the train track with the hmm. the stormy seas coming in. With stormy seas, my taxi driver was uh, was um, giving out yards about people who um, kind of tried to talk us out of a united Ireland. Yeah. you know, and um, in terms of the the cost, like I, what I have seen figures hmm. uh, that ten billion is is mentioned as as yeah. the 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 kind of the cost of Northern Ireland that it doesn't produce as much as it costs to the hmm. the exchequer. Um, but if the, uh, I don't, the economic, um, the economic situation is not necessarily a barrier to, to, a change on the, you know, whether it's a, a a confederation of the two parts or a single country, because as we've seen with the, the disappearing of the border since, since the single, um, single European market, that Mm. the all Ireland economy um, ha- has developed in kind of logical, organic ways. You know, you go to yeah. your nearest supplier, it doesn't matter if they're on the other side of the border or not. Yeah. This is what we, we risk losing with Brexit. Mm. Um, so, the, you know, you know, maybe like there's bound to be synergies, things that don't need to be doubled up, yeah. you know, between um, if the two countries, if the two parts of the island were, were working as one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, the main problem comes back to the hot, Potentially having a hostile minority in the north that would, you know, for them it's just it's a massive psychological um, barrier to go through. From I mean, their entire uh, culture is is about being in the majority and mm-hmm. and dominating and controlling that yeah. space, and and they they will I not give that up easily. It's yeah. It's it, I think there's like like the Swiss. We have a certain experience with referendums, and if something like that was going to be discussed in the future, who knows? And we, we might be having those discussions in the context of Brexit. You'd like to think maybe we can bring British people who've lived in Ireland happily for years to the front of the conversation, or happily by Ireland, I mean the Republic of Ireland, mm-hmm. and just talk about some of those things. Certainly, it's uh, yes. The there there is a certain cost base. You, you we can measure the certain costs in Northern Ireland, but then you consider the the what could be opened up if you looked at the top north northwest corner of the island and how many kind of airports and universities and how many houses for under hundred grand and <laughs> all those things you could get there and what could be done if yeah. that was a single entity planning that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, and, yeah, and Seamus Mallon has pointed out that um, he's very much on the tread tread softly side, mm-hmm. you know, and he's he doesn't believe if there's a border poll that it, it should never be yeah. as we've seen with Brexit, if it's fifty one percent, that's 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 not enough. It's does not going to work. It has mm-hmm. it has to be he believes a majority in both communities, I think. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I mean the, the, there can be no forcing. This will ha- will ha- this will have to come about through yeah. charm and reason. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And I think that's sad that we would like, I don't think anyone, anyone down here wants to barge into that on either side. We, we were looking forward to seeing how it goes. Mm -hmm. So you're, before we wrap up, Switzerland referendums, how do you find they, do you think they, they're good at it? Do you think it works well, the more referendums, more often system? Yeah, well, there's there's a bit of referendum fatigue there. Um, oh. Yeah, because they have referendums uh, four times a year mm -hmm. and you might have two or three at a time and you get the big envelopes in the post and, and, and they do postal voting. Oh. The majority of people vote before polling day. You can go in and vote on the day. Mm -hmm. Um, but they that's why they get their results so quickly. They'll have the results on the day. Um, 90% of people vote by, vote by post. And um, and some of the stuff is seriously technical. You know, it's it might be to do with tax regimes for, for foreign companies or mm. not all of it, you know, it lends itself well to be debated or explained. You yeah. know, so people just... I suppose they, they opt out if, if it's too complicated and then there'll be certain issues that will get people hmm. really interested. But but um, but you also have um, those kind of votes on a local level as well. You might have that for a local bridge, you know, if it's, you know, to is are you prepared to pay this much for it, you know, out hmm. of the out of the state or the cantonal coffers. Um, so but it's yeah, I mean, they're. I do think that the power, the power to the people thing is to be valued like. Yeah. For example, the abortion referendum, we had to wait so long for 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 the government to be ready to move to yeah. to uh, you know that that issue was shirked for for decades. Yeah. And there, you know, if you go out and collect if a hundred thousand signatures, you know, it's usually kind of pressure groups or mm. even political parties who go out. Once they have those signatures, they 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 will they can submit a referendum, but they'll have a text together and get the whole country to vote on it. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree open. there. Yeah, I think yeah the the, the eighth referendum probably would have passed three years earlier if if, if it if it had gone to poll three years earlier, but they were able to delay it that long. I think, mm -hmm. and referend, referendums probably do let politicians off the hook a bit sometimes. Yeah, and there's one more uh, cool <laughs> thing about the Swiss system is that that you can challenge laws as well. So if the the parliament is trumped by the people, if the parliament passes a law. And you disagree with it. Say we're uh, you know in a group of. Um, parents against mm. uh, because there was a, a law change about uh, sanctions for for um child abuse um criminals yeah like if you for that you only need 50,000 signatures you can challenge a law and um before it, it'll be finalized and and come into force it then can be voted on wow. yeah just again through through collecting signatures so you go to the market, uh, the food market on a mm. Saturday and there's all people that people going around with clipboards collecting signatures all the time. Good stuff. Mm. <laughs> Do you have a favourite Irish word we'd like to ask all our guests? <laughs> mm. Well, I, I, um, there's one word I, I say, uh, I use for my kids. They don't mm. even know it's an Irish word. Okay. I just don't, I don't use the English word forehead. I don't like it. So I mm. say bahish. Bahish. I, I like bahish. Um, so I use that and, um, and then that, that'll be confusing for them if they're ever in, in, in hospital <laughs> in England or something. And I really like uh, Ball's Bridge in Irish. Drahad na durha. Drahad na durha. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It is Yeah, it's a nice cool. sound, yeah. It sounds better than Ball's Bridge, that's for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Clarity, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, on the show. Where can people buy your book? It's my pleasure too. Thank you very much, Darach. <laughs> um, well, it's available, I would say, in all good bookstores. Uh, it's available around the country, definitely in 
Dubray and it was launched in Hodges Figgis and um and yeah, and if they don't have it, you can ask for it and and they'll order it in. Or you can buy it directly from mentorbooks.ie. Mentorbooks.ie. Thank you so much. Till the next time, it's a slot from me. Bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. 